Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. So we're going to dig in uh, as we normally do. Here's a, here's a three-step recap of the story so far. Number one, God is in sovereign control over everything. He's in control. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the absolute uh, king over all of creation, over all humanity, over everything. God is the king, and he reigns supreme. There is no rival for his kingship. He is king, control of all things. Humanity, created in God's image, with value and dignity and worth, born or unborn, created in God's image, is rebellious. So we see Genesis 1 and 2, this beautiful depiction of the story of creation. Then Genesis chapter 3, everything comes crashing down because Adam and Eve said, no, thank you, God, we'll do things our own way. And mankind has been doing that same thing ever since Adam and Eve. We go our own way. We do things the way we want to do things. We don't like to be told what or how to do things. Not from our boss, not from our spouse, not from our, not from our king either, right? That's who we are. Yet, rebellious yet loved. Loved by God. God's love is evident. Number three, God's on a gracious mission to redeem those who have spit in his face and turned their backs on him. God in his mercy and his grace is on mission to redeem a people for himself. People who are not looking for him, people who are running away from him as hard and as fast as they could possibly go. He is one by one redeeming a people for himself. In his grace and his mercy, he takes them off the road, the wide road that leads to destruction, turns them off that road and brings them onto the narrow road that leads to life relationship with him. That is what God has been doing over and over and over again. That's what we've seen every single week. It's that those three things played out every single week. We're week number 10. We're a third of our way through the story series. And this same pattern is going to play itself out for the rest of this, of the story. This is the, this is the ongoing saga of scripture. This is the story of scripture. God pursuing and redeeming a people for himself who were rebellious to him in his rule. So we start with creation. We get to the fall. We go to, then we, we see Noah and really the restart of things where the, the earth is wiped out. Noah and his family on a boat, saved, redeemed. However, man's heart and his rebellion were never quite adjusted. And so we get to the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, people say, look, let's make a monument for ourselves. We will make ourselves great. We'll make a tower to heaven. We'll get there ourselves. We will be great amongst all the people. God comes down and disperses the people with different languages across the earth. Then we get to Abraham and the great promise in Genesis chapter uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, where we see God says, Look, Abraham, I'm going to take your family and your lineage, and I'm going to use them to be a blessing to all the world, that all the world will be blessed through your lineage. Then we get to um, Abraham being, uh, or Abraham's descendants going into Egypt, 
for 400 years. They go in with 70 people to Egypt. 400 years later, they leave with over 3 million people. They go from there to the, they leave Egypt. They wander in the desert for many years, enter the promised land, and then we enter the time of the judges. And that's where we're at right now. We're in the time of the judges. And um, specifically, really, this juxtaposition between the judges and the monarchy. And so we're seeing this time that 1 Samuel bring, introduces us to this judges, and then and halfway through 1 Samuel, we're brought into the kingship. I want to just, by way of introduction this morning, show just a, a short video that you can think they should have known better, okay? They should have known better. Born. For the ice bucket challenge, right? Should have known better, right? If you're a crane operator, you don't let your buddy operate the crane as you stand a few feet underneath the bucket, okay? Should have known better. This morning, we're going to look at some guys who should have known better. We're going to look at some, some, some powerful men, some men who were kings, men who were priests, elders of the, of the country, men who should have known better. And so we're going to start by looking at um, Eli and his sons. But first, I just want to remind us again, Je- the, the book of Judges ends in chapter 21, verses 25. It says that in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. So that is the time frame that we're in. That's the context that we're in right now. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, as we begin the book of Samuel, we're introduced to Samuel, who was a tremendous prophet and really the last great judge of Israel. He was a man who followed the Lord. He began hearing the Lord's voice from an early age. He was very much a man who, who ministered powerfully to the nation, was one who uh, clearly spoke God's words to people and was, was just a, a tremendous man of faith and of obedience to the Lord. But like I said, the whole 10th chapter of the story is about Samuel. So we're not going to spend much more time on him than that. I want to dig in, though, with a few places. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're, begin, we're going to begin in verses 12 through 17. And so Samuel grew up in the, in the temple with Eli, who was the high priest at the time. Eli being the high priest at the time was, was his responsibility to minister on behalf of the people before the Lord. He had a, an unbelievable responsibility before God and before, before man. And so his, his responsibility was a very serious one. It wasn't one that we'd take uh, lightly or something we just kind of blow off. This was very, very important. And so now we begin to read about Eli, the high priest, in the time of, of Samuel, in the time of the Judges, and Eli's sons. Now, verse 12 in chapter 2. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. What an introduction. What an introduction. 
Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. And if you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now skip down to verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they had slept with women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to his sons, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among God's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord... Who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to punish, to put them to death. Now, turn with me now over to chapter 3, verse 11. Again, we're still talking about Eli's sons. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. And at that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin that he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. And so here we have this mighty, mighty man of God, Eli, who ministered before the Lord and before the people. And Eli had some sons who, like it said, were scoundrels, who did not fear the Lord, who did things their own way. God comes and says to to Eli, look, your sons are doing terrible things and they need to be straightened out. And instead of Eli stopping them from what they were doing, he just kind of gives them a little slap on the wrist and says, hey, bad boy, don't do that again. But doesn't restrain or stop them from blaspheming against the Lord. Various very serious charge against Eli. Again, Eli should know better. Eli is the one you'd think would just, he would get it. Eli would be the one you'd think, this guy, would, this guy gets it, right? I mean, he, he's ministered before the Lord probably his entire life. He knows the rules. He knows how serious this is. He knows the covenants of God. He's seen the effects of disobedience and obedience of the people. Eli should know better. Let's turn over to the, the people of Israel now. So Eli and his sons, now we're going to look at Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord, the ark of, of God's covenant, was a place of God's presence. And it was, it was a box that was probably two foot by, I think, three foot or so, and it was carried in poles, and they would place it in the tabernacle where they would go to worship. And it was, in a lot of ways, a symbol of God's presence and his power, but also a real a place of where people would, would go to worship the Lord. 
Now, the Ark of the Lord had a few things inside of the Ark. Who knows what they had inside of the Ark? What was inside of the Ark of the Covenant? Aaron's staff, what else? Manna, what else? Ten Commandments, that's right. I was watching a, uh, very good, by the way. I was watching a Discovery Channel uh, show on the Ark. And what I did not realize, which they had, they had found, was that the Ark actually had huge magnets inside of it that would channel the power from the Earth to make the Ark glow. So there's also huge magnets in there as well that we Discovery Channel has helped us to understand better. So um, it wasn't the power of God, it was big magnets. So that, the Ark has that going for it. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Now the, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and the battle spread. Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Almighty, of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherub. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so here we have Israel goes into battle. They get routed by the Philistines. And so what they're going to do is they say, look, we've got a plan. We're going to get our, our, our lucky rabbit's foot, okay? We're going to bring the good luck charm with us to go into battle. We're going to get the Ark of God's Covenant. And so the elders thought this was a great idea. Look, if things aren't going our way, we'll just kind of get this thing over here, and, and then God's going to have to save us. God's going to, we're going to force God to deliver us from the Philistines. They should have known better. They should have known that you cannot treat the Lord like a lucky rabbit's foot. That's not how God is, is to be treated. It's, it's, it's very blasphemous and, and dishonoring to the Lord. Look at chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of the Lord, so the, the Israelites, got, again, got routed. The Philistines took the ark and captured the ark of God. They took it from Ebenezer to Ashad. Then they carried it to the ark of Dagon, the, the ark into Dagon's temple, and set it beside Dagon, their god. When the people of Ashad rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face in the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they arose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time his head and his hands had been broken off, and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest of Dagon nor any other others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashad step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashad and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashad saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on our God Dagon. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of, of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. And so they moved the, the ark to various places. They try to get rid, they try to, Position the ark of God in various temples, and every time it's met with complete and utter disaster. 
because God is not to be trifled with. He's not some good luck charm. He's not some just little trinket that you, you kind of play with, toy around with. Brought serious consequences to the Philistines for their lack of respect and fear of God Almighty. Israelites should have known better. Then we're going to turn to chapter 8. Like I said, this is, in this book, it moves us from the time of the judges to a monarchy, to a kingship in Israel. And as they move from the time of judges to a kingship, before the king ruled in, in Israel, they were, they were ruled by God himself. And so God would come and through, the, through prophets, through judges, he would proclaim his, his um, plans and desires for the people. They would in turn obey God and follow after him or completely disobey and go their own way. But they were ruled that way. They didn't have a king. And so now Israel, wanting to have a king, begins to petition. So this is all the people now gathered together in chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. We're going through it pretty quick, so just stay with me. We'll slow down in a second. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. We want to be like the other nations. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Skip down to verse 19. Samuel gives, him a, gives a warning. This is what it's going to look like for you guys to have a king. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king to rule over us. And then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And so the Israelites, who had experienced the tremendous provision and blessing of God, have now completely said, look, we're kind of, we, we like God, but we want our own king. We want someone to rule over us. Not you, God. We want a human king. We want to be like all the other nations. We want to be like the people who have a ruler who can go out to, and, and stand before the troops and to call the men to action, to battle. And we want to be like everyone else. Should have known better. Then lastly, we're going to look at Saul. And so Saul in chapter 13, Saul becomes the first king of Israel. And Saul has a great start, but just like all the kings, at some point, the wheels fall off the cart. And so 1 Samuel 13, so the king was to be the man who, at this point, represented really the, 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 the purposes of God to the people, that he would follow after God, and he'd be the one who would now lead the people before the Lord. Verse, or chapter 13, verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So they're, they're going up against the, 
against the Philistines, and they're, they're, they're terrified. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So Saul the king is waiting for Samuel to show up to offer the sacrifices. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went over to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. The king replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him to rule over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And so here, Samuel and Saul have this interaction. Saul does not wait, does not follow the the ways of the Lord, completely bucks against that and fear of losing the battle, does things his own way. He should have known better. Then lastly, I just want to read briefly um, in chapter 15. We don't have time to read all of it, but Samuel tells King Saul, look, you're going, to attack, you're going to attack the king, and what I want you to do of the Amalekites, what I want you to do is wipe out everybody. The, the cattle, the, the, the people, all the, all the fighters, I want you to get rid of everybody. And then Samuel shows up after the battle to meet with Saul, and he says to King Saul, why do I hear the, the lowing of cattle? Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? And Saul says, hey, we did everything that you asked. He says, but why do I hear these, these animals in the background? He said, well, the men kept some things for themselves, only the best things. And trust me, we're going to sacrifice those to the Lord. So this is really, we're doing God a favor, right? We didn't wipe out everybody. We just wiped out some and saved the rest for the Lord, right? He'll, he can thank me later for this one. But Samuel replied, this is, this is uh, 15 verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And here King Saul, the first king of Israel, faced with the, the, the mounting pressure of his troops, saying, we, do we really have to get rid of all the good stuff? I mean, surely the Lord would understand if we could just save some for ourselves. I mean, we're hungry. We've been fighting in battle. Can we get a little plunder for ourselves, for our families? So it really help out. Maybe we've got some needs. We can help other people out in Israel. And Samuel nails it. He says, the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice. And because of that, there was disastrous consequences for King Saul. Just like there was disastrous consequences for Eli and his sons, for the people of Israel, and now for King Saul. Now, tucked away in these 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, 
where we see kings and priests and elders of the nation, we are introduced to, at the very beginning to a, a lady by the name of Hannah. Hannah doesn't have really much going for her at the time. Hannah is weak. She has no children. And at the time, that was, that was a very, um, very disappointing and sad state for somebody. We're introduced to Hannah at the beginning of this. And so unlike all these other people who should have known better, we're given this picture of Hannah. I want to read for us just a few parts in the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1 about Hannah's story. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jer- Jerhoram, son of Eliahu, son of Tua, son of Zaph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Peniah. Peniah had children, but Hannah had none. So possibly what had happened is Elkanah married Hannah, who was unable to conceive, so that he took another wife. And this is really the only individual in, in the Old Testament of Scriptures who wasn't a king or some just someone who was unbelievably wealthy who had two wives. Year after year, this man went up from this town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, he, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought that she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine nor beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the Lord God, may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. 
Now, we get this beautiful picture of this helpless woman crying out to the Lord, laying her prayers before the Lord with, with no other help. She's not, a, she's not a person of power. She's not a person of influence. She doesn't command an army. She's not a general. She's not a, she's not a high priest. She's just a simple woman. And the Lord hears her prayer, and the Lord responds to her and gives her a son. I want to read Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. And then we're, going to, we're just going to read through this and make a couple observations, and we're going to close. But this is Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. This is just so beautiful. She said this, My heart, then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn or my strength is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. So as she begins to pray, she begins to say, look, God is otherly. He's not like anyone else. He's not like a human who, who is, changes his mind and does all kinds of, no, this is God our rock. And so there's a, there's a picture I wanted to show briefly just of, um, we vacation up in Michigan. Most of the families vacation. Sometimes you go different places all over. We vacation the exact same spot every single year for my entire life. Um, but these, there's these rocks that are out in the, out in Lake Superior. And these rocks are, there's, there's one at the very end, this big black rock that is probably about four foot by six foot, just huge rock. And the waves in Lake Superior, this is the middle of summer, by the way. So if you want to know what summer is like in the UP, that's what it is. Um, but uh, this rock stands at the very end of, of a group of rocks. And wave after pounding wave after after ice storm, after everything that goes on year after year after year, this rock is immovable. There is nothing that's going to move this rock. And when Hannah begins to describe what God is like, she says, he's like that rock. That no matter what happens or what's going on around, whatever, whatever you're experiencing in your life, there is a God who is a rock, who is immovable. He doesn't change. He doesn't, he doesn't, He's not different from the way we, do, we see him in Scripture. God is our rock, and there is no one like our God. So in light of who God is, we get to verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. How, is there any room for us to boast before the Lord? Knowing that God is our immovable rock, the rock of ages who changes not, is there any room for us to, to speak proudly or about ourselves or anything else? For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down the, to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth, and he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. 
He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. If, if God is able to set the foundations of the world, if God is able to establish the foundations of the earth, how much more so Hannah? He will guard your feet of his he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I love this passage. Because in this passage, we see the very kind of setup for the rest of the book. The rest of the book that we read about with, with Eli and his sons, with the, with the elders of Israel, with, with Saul, it, 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 this describes what we see happening in the following chapters, right? These ministers look, God, I couldn't wait for you. I need to establish my military victory real soon, so therefore I, made the sacri- so therefore I did, went and made the sacrifices. Instead of humbling himself before the Lord, King Saul said, no, 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 we'll do things my way because I'm, getting, I'm, I'm becoming afraid here. And he was broken. We see Eli and his sons who did not treat the Lord with respect and fear and reverence. Instead, did things his own way. He was broken. We see Israel who, were, who was routed before various nations, before the Philistines, wanted to use God's Ark of His Covenant as a good luck charm, and instead suffered major defeat. This chapter for us is so helpful for us. And I believe it serves us as not only a warning, but also an encouragement. As I was praying this week through this passage of Scripture, I really just had a feeling in my heart, it's a sense that God would instruct some of us today here that we are in patterns of sin that God is saying that needs to change. We need to repent. Big or little. Big or little. It doesn't matter. He, he's addressing us where we are and he's saying, look, this needs to be adjusted. Because with, 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 with these men, these people in this scripture, in these chapters that we read today, they weren't all bad people. It wasn't as if they didn't want to honor God. Saul said, look, I wanted, I wanted, we wanted victory. I wanted to do the sacrifices. We went, we went ahead with things. But there was pockets of their lives that were just unsurrendered or not surrendered to the Lord. And it met with disastrous consequences. And I think for each one of us to really seek the Lord and say, God, what areas of my life are you putting your finger on that you're saying, this needs to be adjusted we need to repent and find grace and mercy. But I think the other part of this scripture this morning for us is this, that for us, for those of us who are, are weary and beat down and tired and worn out, there is hope. 
He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap, sets them in places of honor. There are those of us who just need to draw near to the Lord. This is an invitation. This is a beautiful, wonderful invitation to draw near to the Lord. That no matter what we've done or where we've gone or what we've said, that God says, draw near to me. The way that you're on does not lead to life. It leads to brokenness. But also those who are broken have a place of refuge in the Lord that we can draw near to him. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's exactly what this, if you could summarize these, this chapter, if you could summarize this section of scripture, it would be James 4 verse 6. This verse gets played out in all different ways. Those who surrender themselves to the Lord find grace. Those who oppose him, God's active opposition is against them. And my heart for us as a church, for me personally, is that I would find the grace of God. I don't want God's active opposition against me because I'm too proud to do things his way. I'm too proud to surrender. I'm too proud to walk by faith because I think that I know better, because I think that I'm, I, I've got things figured out more than God does. I want to encourage those who are weary. God is near. For those of us who refuse to surrender, God's grace is sufficient for us. See, there is one who fully surrendered and submitted himself to God's will perfectly. Philippians chapter 2 is a beautiful story, beautiful description of the life of Jesus Christ. And it's summarizing the life of Jesus Christ in a few verses. We read in verses 5 through 11, Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So this is the mindset of Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our hope, that even in our rebellion against God, there has been one who has perfectly followed and surrendered himself to the Lord, that there is hope for us to repent not because I've got some kind of right standing on my own before God, but because Jesus Christ has taken our place on the cross and died for our sins. That is our hope. It's in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ humbled himself, poured himself out, so that we who are proud could receive mercy and grace, forgiveness. That is our hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to close today. As I pray, I just want to encourage you, I invite you to ask the Lord areas in our lives that we need to repent and find grace. 
And I also invite you as well, if you are tired and weary, that there is a God who is near. There is a God who is on mission to redeem, pursue, and love. So Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we ask for the grace to repent. God, the areas of our lives that we have compromised, that we have walked away from your will. Lord, we see that it it ends in destruction, God, that your active opposition is against us. God, we don't want to remain there. God, we pray that, that you would give us the humility and the grace to follow after you, turn from our sins. God, I also pray for those today, those of us here today who are worn out, who feel beat down, who feel broken. Lord, I pray. Lord, you lift up. God, you set people in places of honor. Those who have none, you provide. So God, we pray. God, let your Holy Spirit give us the grace and strength to stay near to you. God, thank you for your offer of eternal life in relationship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.